Well, I want to minister for a few minutes this morning through a message that I'm calling Guaranteed Promise. When you take the words guaranteed and promise and use them together in the same phrase or the same sentence, it is what is known as tautology. T-A-U-T-O-L-O-G-Y because you have two words that are essentially saying the same thing. Tautology is the repetition of an idea or a phrase or a statement or just even a single word. Tautology, or what we know as repetition, is often used to reinforce somebody's point. Let me give you a few quick examples of tautology. If I was to say unexpected surprise, that is a classic example of tautology. You see, the fact that it's a surprise means you weren't expecting it. So to say unexpected surprise, you're literally saying the same thing. When we don't expect something, like I said, it comes as a surprise to us, and if we're expecting it, then it would be no surprise at all. If I was to say, enter in or exit out, that is tautology at its finest. You see, if I enter a room, I'm already in the room. I don't have to say enter in the room. The fact that I've entered the room means I'm in the room. It doesn't matter if I came through the door, or I came through a window, or I came through the roof. If I am in the room, I have entered the room. If I say, let's exit out of the building, it sounds right, but the truth of the matter is, if once I step out of the building, I've already exited the building. Once I've exited the building, I've already stepped out of the building. This is a classic example of tautology. If I was to say, filled to capacity, there's another one. You see, if you take a glass and set it on the counter and start pouring water in it, and you take it all the way to the rim, that glass is filled. You don't have to say filled to capacity because the glass is already filled. It's already at its capacity. It cannot take any more on. It is filled to capacity. If I fill that glass to within a quarter inch of the top, believe it or not, that glass is not filled. That glass is not full. Now, the one I want you to really see is the one that we use so often when we say free gift. Well, friends, the fact that it's a gift means it had to come free. If it didn't come free, it wouldn't be a gift. It is a free gift, and I know we use that word quite a bit. Free gift is just a, a classic example of tautology. Now, it doesn't matter if you like the gift. It doesn't matter if it duplicates something you already have. It wouldn't matter if it fits you or not. It is still a gift. If you were to walk up to me with a title for a Mercedes-Benz, brand new, $150,000 Mercedes-Benz, and the keys, you'd have my attention. Now imagine you handed me those keys and that title. Well, I'd smile, I'd shake your hand, I'd hug your neck, I'd jump up and down, I'd probably do some twisting and shouting. I might just thank you. But now imagine this response. I say, oh, that's an expensive gift. I can't let you give me that whole thing without some sort of contribution. So I reach in my wallet and I grab a $20 bill and I say, I want to give you $20 towards this car. Now, if you take that $20 based on what I just said, then that car is no longer a gift. You have just bought a car for $20 and that person has just sold the car for $20. Even though the lion's share portion of the car was the guy who bought it for you and the thimble share portion was yours, you become co-buyers on that car. 
Well, the first thing I want to say to you is Jesus did not shed his blood so that we could be co-buyers with him. Jesus shed his blood so that we could be co-heirs with Christ. He didn't need our contribution. He didn't need it then, and he doesn't need it now. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, we find these words. It says, For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Do you see how many times it says him and his and himself? Where did it say you at? It was all about what Christ did. We are not co-buyers with Christ. We are co-heirs because of his shed blood on the cross. Friends, it may come as an unexpected surprise to learn that through his shed blood, you can enter into his grace and you can exit out of your sinful nature and you can be filled to capacity with his love and it all comes through his free gift of righteousness. In Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, we find this absolute truth. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, and again, justified means declared righteous. We have been justified through faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have also gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Friends, the shed blood of Jesus gave us access into this grace in which we now stand. We see that in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Now, the understanding we glean from the Mercedes analogy helps bring clarity to the magnitude of the gift that we see in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. That say, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I want to draw your eyes to the words in verse 8, not of yourselves. And I want to draw your eyes to the words in verse 9, not of works. So what it does is it takes you and I absolutely out of the equation. It takes the whosoever out of there, and it takes the whatsoever out of there. It's not of yourselves, and it's not of work. There was zero contribution on our behalf, or it would not have been a gift. It would not be the gift of God. Zero contribution. If you and I contribute to our salvation in the slightest measure, I mean through one little act, one little deed, one $20 bill, one eloquent prayer, then it is no longer a gift. We are not co-redeemers with Christ. We are co-heirs with Christ. So now you understand when I use the words guaranteed and promised together, I'm doing this really to reinforce my point and to create emphasis. Guaranteed promise. We live in a world where we are besieged with broken promises. From a child we learn that no's don't always mean no and yeses don't always mean yes. And we also learn that man has this inability to keep every single promise he makes. Are you with me on this? Promises are often broken. They're broken by strangers. They're broken by friends. They're broken by loved ones. And they become more painful through that progression. I get it. What I want you to see through the message today is this, that God is a promise keeper. 
God delights in keeping his word, and God has given us his guaranteed promise through the new covenant of grace that we are forever forgiven, we are forever loved, and we are forever secure with our daddy. Jesus said these words in John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29. Here's what he said. He said, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. And then watch what he says. He says, I give them eternal life. Eternal life is not just until we sin again. We have eternal life, oh, we sin. We don't have eternal life. No, eternal life is exactly what it means. I give them eternal life. I don't know if you've ever read a warranty on a product, but it's very complicated. They use crazy language, I think, so that we just don't understand it. Jesus used very simple language when he says, I'm going to show you the magnitude of this gift. I'm going to give you eternal life. Now, if there were any exclusions, he would have listed them right there. But he said, I'm going to give you eternal life. And I love this. And he says, it's literally like he's saying, and because of that eternal life, they shall never perish. So if you didn't get it the first time around, let's get it on the back end. I got it on the front end when he said, I give you eternal life. But if you didn't get it there, let's get it on the backside when he says, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, he says, who has given them to me is greater than all. All what? All my enemies? All the condemnation that tries to stick to me? All my guilt? All my shame? All my fear? All my failures? All my sin? All my emotional pain? My Father is greater than them all. And as I was looking at the scripture last night, I couldn't help but think, it's almost like you forgot to finish the sentence, Jesus. You said, my father is greater than all, but you didn't say exactly all what. And it was kind of a powerful moment for me because I looked up that little word all. The Greek word for all is pas. And here's what it literally means. It means thoroughly, whatsoever, whosoever, whole, all, and always. When he says, my father is greater than all, he's saying literally, my father is greater than whatsoever, <laughs> and my father is greater than whosoever, and my father is greater always. That little word that the Greeks would have totally understood when Jesus said that, he didn't have to fill in a whole bunch of blanks and tell them what it all consisted of, because they understood when they heard that word exactly what he meant when he says, my father is greater than them all. If you don't believe me, they didn't understand it. You just keep reading because I think it's around verse 31 or something like that. The Bible says, and those religious leaders tried to stone him right after he said that. They got exactly what he said. That was blasphemy to them. So Jesus plainly said, my father is greater than all, the whatsoevers and the whosoevers. Now, when I looked that word all and that word pass up in the Strong's Concordance, and I would encourage you as you study the Bible to do that through a Strong's Concordance because it begins to break down words for us so that we get a bigger picture of those words. The first thing I noticed in addition to the definitions that we just looked at is the first thing it says in the Greek definition is including all the forms of declension. And as I was staring at that word yesterday, I said declension. Now, I've got a pretty large vocabulary, but that's one word I've never used. I'm 56 years old. I'm declension. What, what's declension? Maybe some of you guys are smarter than I am. I don't know. I, I kind of had the flavor of where it might be running, but I didn't realize what it would really say exactly. 
And so I went to Webster's Dictionary to look up declension, and this is literally what it means. It says literally a leaning back or down, a falling or declining towards a worse state, a tendency towards a less degree of excellence or perfection. So what Jesus was telling us by saying his father was greater than all, he was telling us that spiritually speaking, his father is so great that he will not allow us spiritually to fall or to decline towards a worse state or towards a less degree of excellence or perfection in our spirit man or in our eternal being. I don't know about you, but that was worth shouting for me when I said, wow, right there it is, daddy. It's because my father is greater than all. It's not that I'm greater than all. It's my father is greater than all. And he is the one who will keep me from declining in my spiritual state. He's the one who keeps me from being able to decline. Oh, you hear this word backsliding. I think it's mentioned like once or twice in the Old Testament or something like that. And we always took that as, oh, you've fallen away from God. You've backslid. No, you haven't fallen away from God. It says right here that he is able to keep us in the state that he sealed us in by the Holy Spirit when he saved us. PAS, P-A-S, the Father keeps us in the same degree of excellence and perfection that he saved us in. Jesus told us twice that neither shall any pluck us out of his Father's hand. Friends, I want to tell you something. The Father's hands are Jesus' hands. Because in the very next verse, we find this. Jesus said in the very next verse, I and my Father are one. Jesus' hands are the ones that hold us secure and firm till the very end. And it gives us the confidence, no matter what I've done, no matter what I've said, no matter what I've thought, Jesus keeps me in a state of perfection and excellence. I'm not talking about all my conduct. I'm not talking about all my ways, but I'm talking about what really counts. I'm talking about that inner man that God looks upon. And when he looks upon his son, Jesus, he sees me as excellent. He sees me as perfect. Would you like to see a comprehensive list of the whatsoevers and the whosoevers that cannot pluck us from the hand of our daddy? I'll show it to you. It's in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his only son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies, the Bible says. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. I take great refuge, I take great comfort in knowing my Jesus is interceding for me because he doesn't pray the crazy prayers I pray. He didn't pray the skewed prayers and the wrong motivation prayers that I pray. He knows how to use the exact words. He knows how to pray to the Father. And he is interceding for me day and night. I'm in the word. Jesus is interceding for you, Papa. Jesus is interceding for you, Mama. You're going to make it because of Jesus alone, okay? Not because you knew how to pray a right prayer. I've met people in my course of life said, you know, I just don't know how to pray. I say, well, just talk to him like you talk to me. Whatever you say is going to get filtered through Jesus. He's going to clean it all up so that daddy understands it anyway. You know, just say it like he would say it to us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, here's this list that's coming up of the whatsoevers and the whosoevers. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. There's seven whatsoevers right there. 
As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now friends, here comes the balance of the whatsoevers and the whosoevers. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any other powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation. And I love the fact that they end with that one because if they wouldn't have ended with that one, you could say, well, he didn't say this one. He said, I'm just going to make it so plain to you. I've given you 17 total things here that cannot separate you from the love of God. And that last one is not anything else in creation. Nothing under the sun can separate you from my love. He says, we'll not be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Friends, the glorious news is that there is no declension for the person that has put their faith in Jesus Christ. There is no falling or declining towards a worse state or towards a less degree of excellence or perfection in our spirit man. We have a guaranteed promise from Jesus Christ himself. Amen. A lifetime of broken promises by man, though, condition us to believe that everybody breaks promises. We hear words like, everybody does it, it's no big deal, just get over it, get on with life, stuff like that. Broken promises transcend the boundaries of the natural realm we live in. This is the trouble with it, is they transcend the boundaries all by themselves, and they spill over into the supernatural realm that God lives in and that Jesus lives in. Our daddy is there. And the way we see people as our lives are developing, like from a child, the way we begin to see people programs us, if you will, so that this is the way we're going to see daddy quite often later in life. Everything that's been happening in your life from a child will transcend over into this spiritual realm. That's why when you get saved, you still have a lot of crazy ideologies and stuff like that because the spirit man got transformed, but the soulish man, there's an ongoing process to transform him. That's why the Bible says, transform your mind by the renewing of your mind. If we were abused as children, we will see God as abusive. If we had to earn the love of a father or a mother, we will believe that we have to earn the love of our daddy in heaven now. If our earthly father abandons his children, then we will see God as moving in the absolute opposite direction, kind of almost abandoning us when there's conflict or there's sin in our lives. It's not what we want to believe. It's just that it is our automatic default system. It's what we default to because it's what we're used to. Before I got saved, I heard a song that was called Daddy's Hands. And the woman who wrote it, wrote it as a tribute to her own father. I like certain things about it. In fact, at the time, I liked the whole song. But now, as I'm thinking about it now, there's certain things I like about it I would consider accurate, and there's certain things I don't like about it because I would not consider it to be accurate. Without getting into the whole song, the chorus just says, Daddy's hands were soft and gentle when I was crying. Does that sound like Daddy? Let me know. Does that sound like Daddy? Daddy's hands were soft and gentle when I was crying. Oh, but then it takes a right-angle turn and says, Daddy's hands were hard as steel when I'd done wrong. That doesn't sound like my daddy. Daddy's hands weren't always gentle, but I've come to understand that there was always love in daddy's hands. It's mixture. It's saying, yeah, daddy's like this. No, daddy's like this. Daddy's like this. No, my daddy is always good. Daddy's hands are gentle. Listen, when I'm crying and I'm hurting and daddy's hands are gentle when I've done wrong. The Bible says it's the goodness of the Lord. It's the goodness of daddy that causes men to change their mind and say, daddy, I don't want to do that anymore because you've shown me your goodness. It's the goodness of God that causes us to repent or to change our mind. 
I have early childhood memories of my own daddy's steel hands, and they scarred me emotionally for a long time. And when I gave my heart to Jesus, I carried those emotional scars into my relationship with my own Savior. I don't believe I'm the only one who feels that way. Maybe your daddy was good to you. I'm not talking about your own personal daddy. No, someone else in your life. If you never had to experience any of that, praise God to you. But I think most people have to go through different things. The earliest memory I have in life is being absolutely beaten by my daddy. I think I was about three. Now, most people don't have those early memories, two or three, but I remember where we lived. I was sitting at the table with my daddy one day, and he said to me, Son, I'm going to leave the room now. Don't you touch my cigarettes. They were a pack of cigarettes sitting up on the table. Daddy was gone, so what does the little boy do? I probably would have never even thought about playing with those cigarettes until he gave me a do not touch law. And so when he left, I took one out and I started playing with them. I wanted to see why wouldn't he want me to play with these. And sure enough, I broke one. They're, they're just tender little things. I tried to stuff it all back together, but friends, I don't know if you've ever smoked or not, but it's really tough to put a cigarette back together once you've broken one. I stuffed it back in the pack. My daddy came in a little bit later, and uh, sure enough, he got a cigarette out of there, and it was the very one I had broken, and he knew it was me. His belt came off, and he held it by the buckle, and he beat me unmercifully with that belt. I mean, when I would get a whipping from my daddy, he would use it like a strap and it wouldn't matter if it hit you on the back, the rear end, or the face, wherever, your hands, whatever it may be, but he would go for a long time and, and beat you unmercifully. I mean, you could just sense the anger. It wasn't loving correction. It was anger and it was hostility that was coming out. And I remember that. I remember that getting beaten like that. The law does not keep us from sinning it increases our desire to sin. You say, man, that, do, that just doesn't sound right. Why would God give the law? Why would he give the law to increase us in our desire and propensity to sin? Let's take a look at that. Romans chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. For it's just through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners. So also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Stop here for a second. Who's the one man that they're talking about when it comes to disobedience? They're talking about the first man, the first Adam. Adam is the one who made us sinners. Adam did this and he made us sinners. Once Adam sinned, I think he realized, oh man, everything just changed. And his delete button, as my wife talks about, or his undo button, or his recycle bin, was the fig leaves. Today we want to just say, oh, let's just... Let's just wash it away. Let's just get rid of it however we can. But what Adam did, there was no way to reverse what he did. Personally, he, there was nothing he could do after he did that to reverse the curse that he put upon man. But then it says, but through the obedience of the one man. Now, who's that one man? The last Adam, Jesus. Through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. So Jesus did something, too, that cannot be reversed. There's no delete button. He took our delete buttons off the keyboard. He took our undo buttons off the keyboard. He took our recycle bin off of there. He put everything in the trash bin at one time. He said, you'll never have to do this again, son. 
What Jesus did on the cross, we cannot reverse. Once we receive the benefits of salvation, we cannot, we cannot, no more than Adam could change what he had done, we cannot change what Jesus has done once we've received him as Lord and Savior. And I love it because he's got us in a place where no viruses can come into. Viruses can't get into that sealed area. He sealed us with the Holy Spirit. Continue and read, and it says, The law was added, this is the part I want you to see, the law was added so that the trespass might increase. Didn't say decrease, did it? It says the law or the Mosaic law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring, watch these words, eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. What do you mean by that? It was added so that a person could see their need for salvation. So a person could see that the law can't save me. The law is not my friend. I'm always a failure under this law system. And I'm a failure for anything I put my hope in, any whatsoever or whosoever other than Jesus Christ himself. Oh, man. When I was in ninth grade, I was a little guy. I was four foot 11 and 98 pounds. Now, can you understand why I didn't play in the basketball team? Four foot 11, 98 pounds. Couldn't really wrestle. I would just, man, I had arms that looked about like that. So I took other things that size didn't make a difference, like band and Spanish. But one of my favorite classes was typing. Ninth grade, I took a typing course. And the first day of that course, our typing instructor gave us all a little car, a little cardboard car, automobile, and you put your name on it, and he put it up into the corner of the room, all down the side there. And as you progressed in typing, as you became more proficient at it, and more words per minute, your car got to move so many paces. I wanted to be first. I wanted. I didn't want to be in the back of the pack. I wanted to be number one. I wasn't number one at anything, but I found I could type. Oh, man, I could type pretty fast. And I would just be typing, and I put a lot of work into learning how to type and type fast and not make so many mistakes. I mean, I really was diligent about it. But there was one boy in the class always edged me. We left the girls in the dust, but there was one boy that was always out in front of me a little bit. And then every time you took your test, determined how many paces your car moved forward. And there was a week where I thought, man, I have really did good this week. I've come up five or six or seven more words per minute, and my accuracy is better. I'm going to run right out in front of that guy right now. And the next week when we came into class, I looked up there on the wall going, hey, I know I'm going to be first. The guy was still out in front of me. He had just as good a week. You see, that's the whole point where Sin abounded, the Bible says. Grace kept more abounding. It kept running in front of us and saying, I am greater than all your failures, all your mistakes, all your issues of life, all your sin. I am greater. I will always be out in front of you. I will always be abounding in front of you. You know what? That didn't make me want to live a reckless life with my car. I didn't want to just reach up on the wall and tear my car down. I didn't want to ram it into all the other cars. I wanted to keep moving forward. Friends, I want to tell you something. When you fail, when you have a less than shining moment, understand that His grace, His grace is increasing all the more. Am I in the Word? It says right there, where sin increased, grace increased 
all the more. Through the first 10 years of my Christian walk, I vacillated in and out of believing that my Jesus was drawing lines in the sand and not wanting me to cross them. That if I crossed those lines too many times, he was going to get up and leave me. I don't know if any of you guys have ever been there, but I'm talking about in my early Christianity when I didn't have the message of the finished work of the cross. When I thought it was about me giving him $20 bills. When I thought it was about me about giving him contributions of working and witnessing on the streets and whatever I was doing. When I thought I was contributing toward this, I felt like I was on top of the mountain. But if I had a slow period and nobody was coming to Christ, all these things like that, or I thought or did something wrong, then, then and then, I thought, oh man, I just crossed that line that he drew. I'm going to ask you a question. Where did I get that mentality from? Where would I have gotten that mentality from? I know I'm not just speaking to myself here. Where would I have gotten that mentality from? I got it from religion, and I got it from watching my earthly father abandon his family when I was just a little boy. That mentality transcended over into my adult life and even over into my Christian walk. A day came, though, where I said, that's enough, about 11 or 12 years ago. There finally came a day I drew my own line in the sand. I said, that is it. I'm not going to have two or three good weeks and then have an off day or two thinking my daddy might leave me. I'm not going to have a month or two and then a week where my daddy might get up and leave me. And I drew my own line in the sand. I called my employer and said, I'm not coming to work today. I'm taking the day off today. And I determined I was going to sit before the Lord and I was going to meditate before the Lord because for two years now at my former church, I had preached on inner healing. I had been preaching about this emotional healing that you could be healed from it, you could be set free from it. And for two years, every time I got in the pulpit, just as much as you hear me preach about grace, I preached about inner healing. But I thought, man, I'm not getting healed myself, Lord. Why? Why is it? For the most part, I'm okay. I feel like I'm right with you. But then there's times for an hour or two or a day or a week, I, I don't feel like I'm right. I'm not feeling the connection. I said, I can't go on feeling like that. And I really believe this is where my beginning to understanding His grace started even though it would be still a few years after that where I would begin to get the finished work message. I believe that's where it began. And so I stayed home that day, and I sat in the chair, and I put my Bible in my lap, and I said, Lord, I'm going to meditate, and I'm going to read the Scriptures, and you're going to show me today exactly how to be healed from this. Because I knew what I needed is I needed the right word from God. This is what I needed. I needed a word from my daddy to set this in perspective. And so I sat there. And I meditated, and I read the Word, and I prayed, and nothing came. Hour after hour after hour after hour, nothing came. And it was about noon. I mean, I got up very early that morning. It was about noon. And I finally closed my Bible, and I said, it didn't come today, Daddy. It will have to be on another day. And so I quieted myself before the Lord. And when I had given up, see, when I had my Bible open, and I was trying to make it happen, it wasn't coming because it was my contribution. The moment I closed my Bible and just said, okay, you know, I surrender. Instantly, the Lord opened up that scenario of me as that little boy getting beaten by my daddy. I wasn't thinking about that. But the Lord said, I want to take you back. Holy Spirit said, I want to take you back and show you where that was sewn into your life. And in my mind's eye, I, I literally could see it. It was like a movie screen. I could see being beaten by my daddy. And after he had whipped me several times, in the picture, I watched Jesus walk in the room. And I watched Jesus walk over and kneeled down around that little boy, me, and he put his arms around me, and I could feel my daddy beating the back of my Jesus. Every time he hit my Jesus, I could feel that thud coming through into my body. It didn't hurt like it was before Jesus got there, but I could feel Jesus being whipped. 
And he took it over and over and over and over again. And I had this sense of, of knowing, Jesus, you could stop this. Why don't you stop this? Why don't you stop this? Why don't you get up and tell my daddy to stop this? And he took it over and over and over again. Surely he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. Chastisement of peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. When the beating stopped and it was just quiet, Jesus spun me around and I looked right into the eyes of my Savior. And I heard Jesus say to me, my daddy is nothing like your daddy. My father is good. My father is kind. My father is loving. My father is warm. My father is forgiving. My father will never, ever leave you or forsake you. With tears running down his eyes. And I can't tell you how broken I was that day. And it was the moment that Jesus instantly healed me because I had a word. I saw the picture and I had the word and I knew from that point forward I would never fear that ever again that my daddy would leave me. That's all we need. We just need a word from the Lord with any of these inner issues that we're dealing with. All we need is for the Holy Spirit to speak into those situations. Fortunately for us, His promises are absolutely guaranteed not only because of the covenant that we have with him, but because God cannot lie. God cannot break any of his promises. God is a covenant keeper. A promise keeper is what he is. He's made those promises to us and he keeps them. The jewel above all promises, the one that strips away fear and condemnation, is that our daddy has made guaranteed promises to us of eternal life. One of those promises is found in Titus chapter 1 and verse 2. He says, in hope of eternal life, which God or which daddy that cannot lie promised before the world began. I want you to take that scripture this morning. I want you to lock it up in the hope chest of your heart. He says right there, in hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before the world began. Friends, encapsulated in that short scripture are several truths. Number one, we have the hope of eternal life. He says, in hope of eternal life. Number two, we have eternal life is God's promises or God's guarantee. He says, promise before the world began. But sandwiched between that eternal life and that promise there is the glorious truth that God, our daddy, cannot lie. It's not that he just won't lie. He cannot lie. This quiets my heart by knowing that I have a guaranteed promise of eternal life from my daddy. So how do we lay hold? How do we apprehend? How do we reach out and grab the guaranteed promise of eternal life that Titus speaks of in chapter 1? How do we lay hold of these promises so that our faith is unshakable? As Paul continues to write in Titus, as we move up into chapter 3 and verse 7, it says simply this that being justified by His grace. Remember, grace is a gift. If there's any contribution on our part, is no longer a gift. That being justified or declared righteous by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. It's awesome to see how many times when you find the words eternal life, you'll find grace nearby. Eternal life, you'll find love nearby. Eternal life, you'll find justification nearby or righteousness or daddy's love, whatever it may be. In Numbers chapter 23, verses 19 and 20, Moses wrote these words. God is not a man that he should lie. Not a human being that he should change his mind. 
Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? He said, I have received a command to bless. He has blessed me and I cannot reverse it. He has blessed me and I cannot reverse it. There is a blessing on our lives, a blessing on your life, and you cannot reverse it. Oh, that scripture would be worth meditating on. He has blessed me, and even if I wanted to, I cannot. It doesn't say I won't reverse it. Won't and cannot are two different words. He said he has blessed me, and I cannot reverse it. Why can't our blessing be reversed? Because our blessing of righteousness is an eternal gift, and there is no declension in Christ. Friends, let me tell you something. If we marry Titus chapter 1 together with the passage of Numbers 23, we discover that we have the guaranteed promise of eternal life. See the guaranteed promise? And we have the promise that we have been blessed and it cannot be reversed. Guaranteed promises are threaded throughout the Bible from cover to cover and are summed up in these following words here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 through 22. Apostle Paul said, for all the promises of God in him are yes, <laughs> yes, yes. I love saying yes. Don't you love saying yes? I don't like saying no to people. I like saying yes. And the Bible says all the promises of God in him are yes and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us in God who also has sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Oh, let me take you back to the title here for a moment, Guaranteed Promise. You see that for all the promises of God in Him are yes, and He's given us these promises as a guarantee. God's promises are not guaranteed to us because of something we've done or something we're doing or something that we'll do in the future. His promises are guaranteed to us to establish us with Christ and that he has sealed us with the Holy Spirit in a state of no condemnation and no declension. In Romans chapter 4, we are faced with the incontestable truth that we have been justified. That means declared righteous by grace through faith alone, apart from any contribution or performance or works on our behalf. No amount of works made me right with Jesus. No amount of works keep me right with Jesus. Furthermore, our broken promises do not negate his promises to us. That's very important. Our broken promises to you, each other, to him, do not negate his promise to us. I remember when I first got saved, I was making God all kinds of promises. Just out of foolishness, just out of zeal. It was not under necessarily law. I really felt it was motivated by love, but I, it was hasty. I didn't take time to think it through, and I would make God some crazy promises. I started to tell you some of them, but uh, they're, they're so crazy, you'd laugh at me. But I made him crazy promises, promises that nobody could fulfill. But I said, I'll do this, God. Our broken promises do not negate his promises to us. We see this truth that Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, and verse 13. He says, if we are unfaithful, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny who he is. He cannot deny who he is. You don't know this, but 38 years ago today, it was April 23rd of 1979, I began my working career. I was 18 years old. I took my first full-time job 38 years ago today. And I worked for a little mom's and pop's appliance store and television store, electronic store, if you will. 
In those days, we had manuals to go with the product, but they had something written in the back called a guarantee. Now they've replaced that with warranty. I don't know, we've gotten sophisticated now. We've kind of gotten away from guarantees. We went now to warranties. I don't know, maybe they thought that language was just too strong. Guarantee. Let's just call it a warranty. Nonetheless, have you ever noticed when you are reading a warranty that it has a long list of exceptions and expirations and limitations and exclusions, including what they call acts of God? You know, they even blame like tornadoes and floods and hurricanes and lightning. They say if your product fails under those circumstances, we're going to call that an act of God. That is not no act of God. God is not in the destruction business. God is in the resurrection business. God is in the healing business. God is not to bring pain and suffering and hurt on us. Yet the warranties call them acts of God. Many warranties have what they call a proration clause, where the owner of the product shares a responsibility. It's a proration. I pay part, you pay part. In many warranties, they have what I call built-in wiggle room. This gives the manufacturer the ability to wiggle out of his responsibilities and go, hey, it was right there in the manual. I listen, I've looked at enough of them. I know. Friends, let me tell you something. I'm so delighted that the righteousness that is on Jesus was transferred to us as a free gift with no stipulations and no wiggle room. Jesus is not looking for a way out of the promises he has made to us. His righteousness has no expiration. It has no limitations. It has no exclusions. His righteousness is comprehensive and it covers everything. Here's what I felt the Lord say to me. He speaks to me in a way I understand. You see, when it comes to warranties, you have trip charges and you have parts and you have labor. Jesus made the trip to Mount Calvary. He laid all of his body parts on the tree of Calvary. There our Savior labored and there he paid for every single one of our sins. So then why does a believer still feel guilty or condemnation? Why would we feel that way? We hear words like this, these gracious words of God. Why would we still go through a time where we would feel condemnation or guilt or shame? It's because of a lifetime of wrong programming and misinterpreting the scriptures. In the late 1980s, I was asked to take a polygraph test for a company I worked for because a piece of equipment came up missing. I was the one that noticed it missing. I was the one that made the big deal about it. But the alarm company for the company said, everybody that owns a key to this store is going to take a polygraph test. They took me from one city to another. I rode with the detective over to another city. If you've ever had a polygraph test done on you, I want to tell you, they wire you up. You look like you're wired for 220. They measure respiration. They measure your pulse. They measure your blood pressure. They've got little sensors on your fingers. They measure your sweat glands. They've got electrodes everywhere. And I sat in that chair for two hours while that guy asked me questions. They weren't all about what was missing, the product that was missing. They started off with simple things like, is your name Mark? Absolutely, yes. They were all yes and no questions. Do you live at such and such a place? Yes. Is your middle name this? Is your last name that? Are you this amount of age? And then you can watch how those questions progressively change. Do you work for such and such store? <laughs> Are you the sales manager there? And you, you know where he's going. And as he's doing that, your heart is just racing faster and faster and faster because ultimately they're going to ask you that question. Did you take, did you steal that product? By the time he got to that question, my heart felt like it was going to beat out of my chest. 
I mean, I could hear my heart in my ears. It was crazy loud. I don't know why I was so nervous. It was just, you know, I was young and I thought, if this thing is wrong, I'm going to lose my job. I need this job. I don't know what it was. But my point of this whole thing was, as I took the test, two weeks later, I finally asked the owners of the store, I said, did you ever hear back from the polygraph results? Oh, yeah, we heard back. So what did it say? Well, they said you were totally innocent. I said, I almost wanted to say, really? But I knew I was innocent. But my question is, how can a person who is totally innocent, totally innocent, feel absolutely guilty? feel absolutely condemned. It's because of wrong programming that we sense and we feel this way. So it is with believers. We have received the unconditional innocence of Christ, yet many people will walk around in their Christian life feeling guilty and shameful and condemned, even though they are absolutely innocent. And I want to tell you something. That should bring hope to your heart. Next time the enemy's trying to put that stuff on you, just shake it off and say, listen, I guess according to Pastor Mark, it's possible to feel guilty when you're not guilty. I know I have personally experienced it. If nothing else, I went through that situation 30-some years ago so I could stand here and tell you about how this applies to our Christian walk, if nothing else. Romans chapter 4 heralds the good news that our sins have been forgiven and the Lord will never count our sins against us. Romans chapter 4 proclaims the good news that we possess the guaranteed promise of God and that His guaranteed promise comes by grace through faith, not of ourselves, not of works. Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. What shall we say then that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Now hear me on this point here. Every two weeks on a Friday, the president of the company will come around and shake my hand and put a check in my hand. That's not an unexpected surprise to me. Because I work for that check. And I've got it coming. I worked. I labored for that check. I made you more money than you gave me, by the way. That's not an unexpected surprise to me. But if he put two checks in my hand, that would be an unexpected surprise. So the point he's trying to drive home here is simply, listen, if Abraham did this all by himself, if he worked to achieve this righteousness, then he has a reason to brag. He has a reason to boast. But it says not before God. Oh, he bragged before you, he bragged before me. It doesn't matter, not before God. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies, that means declares you righteous, he justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one who God credits righteousness apart from from works. It is interesting when I think about this that David under the old covenant is about to say what he's about to say. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Then he says, blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. 
Under his day, it was lamb by lamb. It was sin by sin sacrifice. So for David to even prophesy, blessed is the one. I believe there's coming a day. I don't know what it looks like. I don't know exactly who this Jesus is, but I believe there's coming a day that they'll not even be counted against you. Your sins will never be counted against you. It was almost like he was prophesying about Jesus. My final scriptures. Romans chapter 4, skipping up to verses 13 through 16. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promise is worthless because the law brings wrath. The law doesn't bring salvation. The law doesn't bring friend. The law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. And of course, in Romans chapter 6, we see very plainly we are dead to the law. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, watch this now, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. We are Abraham's offspring. Friends, I don't know how I could have made the, the scriptures more plain than to remind us once again, we are forever forgiven. We are forever loved. We are forever secure because of Jesus. He is daddy's guaranteed promise. Father, I want to thank you this morning for your grace. I have delighted in taking your word and marrying it in our hearts so that we can see over and over again the blessed assurance that we have. Father, we have a guaranteed promise. We have a guaranteed promise of your love. We have a guaranteed promise that you'll always be with us, that you'll never leave us or forsake us. We have a guaranteed promise that we are secure in the hands of Jesus. We have a guaranteed promise that our daddy's hands are gentle when we're crying and our daddy's hands are gentle when we've done wrong. I want to thank you, Father, that nothing can ever change our state of perfection the way you see us. Nothing can ever change our state of excellence the way you behold us. When you look through the eyes and the body and the heart of the darling of heaven, his name is Jesus, the one who sits by your right hand and intercedes for us both day and night. Father, seal these words in our heart now. In Jesus' name, amen.